Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly shared with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Couturium.com in affiliation with Quadrille Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.culturium.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJpodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled From Stem Cell Research to Biotechnology, an interview with Harvard professor Chad Cowan. Welcome, Chad, to the podcast. Thank you, Henriette. It's a pleasure to be here. You, sir, have had an amazing career and have been conducting groundbreaking scientific research both at Harvard and at other institutions. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little about Chad Cowan, the man, and fill us in on your education and your work. I'd be happy to. Um, so Chad is the man. I am happily married and live in a little city called Manchester-by-the-Sea, which is just north of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we have two um, boys. Our oldest is nine years old and is named Davy, and our youngest is um, just turned eight and his name is Ellery. Uh, my journey to where I'm at today began in Kansas, which is where I'm from. Um, I was born in Wichita, the big city, uh, which is not known for much except for a period of time that built most of the aircraft um, that uh, were flown throughout the United States. Um, as a kid, I did not care about academics um, at all. <laughs> I cared about playing outside. Um, I cared about sports. Um, I think I started caring about cars and then eventually girls. Um, so that was sort of like my whole childhood. And that ended uh, with me going to the University of Kansas, um, where actually I started pursuing what turned out to be a lifelong love, which was science. Um, I was a chemistry major there and then added on to that a biology uh, major. After graduating the University of Kansas, I went down to Texas where I had the pleasure of getting a PhD from a school known as UT Southwestern at Dallas. And I had very, I had very little knowledge about that school when I was applying to it. But at the time that I um, first came to UT Southwestern, they had five Nobel Prizes and then actually added another one since. So it's a really spectacular research university associated with a major hospital. And that's probably where um, my true love of 
research in science began because I had the opportunity to delve into um, you know research at the bench in a laboratory and not just sort of the dry esoteric stuff you learn in textbooks. And you know I think I continued to feed the um, interests that I had in asking big questions about the world around me because it was amazing what you could do in biology at the time. You could ask a question, you could get an answer, you could then reinterrogate that, that same thing again and again, and it was a what they now term a virtuous cycle. Um, as I was uh, nearing the end of my PhD, I got very interested in stem cells and stem cell technologies, and I started looking around um, at all the laboratories that were working in a newly emerging field of human embryonic stem cells, and. The reason I started looking at all of those was because I thought that the potential of what we could do with human embryonic stem cells was um, nearly limitless. And I got lucky again because it was so new, there were probably only five or six labs even in the world that were doing anything with it. So I didn't have to look that hard to try to find a laboratory to join. And I uh, that led me on a journey to Harvard where I did my postdoctoral fellowship with a professor named Douglas Melton. And then as I tell people, um, Harvard was sort of like a black hole that sucked me in and I almost never left. Um, although very recently, as um, I was sharing with you, Henriette, I've now departed academia and am uh, leading a, a small biotech company. But for 15 years, I was um, in the, a variety of roles here at Harvard, including um, for a while, uh, a professor at the college where I was teaching undergraduates for about a decade. What was the most important part of your education? What was most invaluable? That's a, I would say it's odd to think of it this way, but I was not a particularly good classroom learner, right? It's odd to become a professor and then have to acknowledge that you were a bad student. Um, I didn't do the homework like you were supposed to do it. I didn't study for exams the way you were supposed to study for exams. And it meant that I, suffered a lot of setbacks, whether it was in high school, college, or even later, where you know you might, in a uh, standard academic career, expect someone who was at a top university to have gotten straight A's in everything they did, but that wasn't my path. Um, I found usually there were alternate routes to the same places. And I think that in a weird way, the setbacks, the failures are what made me better or who I am, like the things that made me realize um, why it was important to show up to class on time, right? You need, it was just the respect you were giving to the other person and the other people in the class, the person teaching it and the people that were taking it with you. Um, and, the, you know, it took me a while to, you know, evolve there, but I think the mistakes I made throughout life have actually served to teach me more than the things that came easy. Um, and so, you know, what I do credit are some incredible people who sort of, you know, by probably grace uh, showed up in my life. Early on in Kansas, my next door neighbor was actually an astrophysicist, which is relatively rare in Kansas, but he'd been recruited to Wichita because I think I, I mentioned that they developed airplanes there. And so as a physicist, he was um, one of the people who was working on making airplanes more aerodynamic and part-time teaching at our local university. And he had a real passion for the stars. And so he would come knock on my door when I was just a little boy 
and wake me up in the middle of the night to show me, for instance, Saturn through a home-built telescope that he had in the backyard. So I think having people like that engage your curiosity in the world around you um, was really fundamental. And I got lucky again in high school. I had two exceptional teachers who took a personal interest in me, a biology professor and a chemistry professor. And they sort of just opened my eyes to what um, could be accomplished through science. Um, and it just, I think that set me on a path. And then again, um, I had an opportunity to work in a laboratory while I was at the University of Kansas. And that sort of taught me that it could go beyond what you learn in books. And you could actually start to, you know, fundamentally ask questions and learn new things on your own. Um, and I found sort of the perfect working environment in Texas where I had more of a friendship than a mentorship with my uh, professor there, Mark Hinkemeyer. Um, and that lasted for six years. And I think it just gave me the confidence because I'd failed so many different ways <laughs> throughout my PhD that when I did get to the later stage of my research career, I knew that when you get knocked down, you just have to stand back up and try again. Um, and that I'd learned enough from my sort of circuitous path through um, academia, that there are a lot of different ways to the same place. It's not as though you only take one path to get to where you want to go. So I think that was probably overall the most important um, lesson for me in life and what I learned um, if I were to take anything away from it. It's interesting that you say you you feel like you weren't a good student and you weren't, uh, that you had all these different failures. I. I... It's, it's 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 really hard for me to actually even hear that. I mean, we, we've known each other for for a long time. We've uh, we've been in classes together, and you always had the better grade. So <laughs> I don't remember Only you you I failing or struggling in organic chemistry like I was. <laughs> so yeah, only in the science classes. I think you know. I think it was just different things. I um, you know, I there was a class where. In call in my graduate studies, where I got straight A's on all the exams, but I was so busy with my lab work, I wasn't showing up for the in-class um, lectures. And the professor of that class refused to give me a grade because he thought it was so disrespectful. So I actually it was a really important lesson. I had to retake that whole class again in my graduate studies. And at the time, I remember being so frustrated. So I was like, "But I, you know, I knew all the content, and I didn't do." I, why do I have to go back to this class? But, you know, an important thing to learn is that classes aren't just about content and what you might be able to read in a textbook. It's about the dynamic and the conversation that you have with your other students, some of the things that emerge from, um, you know, just the conversations back and forth. Or, you know, I think that what I usually impress upon students in my own classes is how little we know, even in the things we think we understand deeply. You know, I, I remember um, not thinking that we knew how photosynthesis worked and coming to graduate school and actually um, meeting the man who solved the crystal structures that determined how the particular opsins and plants convert sunlight energy into actual energy in plants. Um, and so I, it was first an eye-opening moment that we actually do know how photosynthesis works. But second, um, even in knowing that, there's whole areas of, you know, he, he had had a 40-year-long research career, and he still had hundreds of people working in the same field throughout the world, 
trying to solve the remaining problems. Like even in a really well-studied area where we thought we'd kind of nailed it, we still didn't understand it. Um, so I usually let, try to leave my students with that. And I don't think you get that unless you go to classes and you start to talk and you start to explore ideas in a more dynamic fashion than you books. Um, the limits of our knowledge and how much we know or don't know and how some of the simplest questions those asked by freshmen in the class with an introductory student are the ones that are actually the most difficult to answer. That's great, yeah. I know you to want to dissect and, and uh, analyze everything very closely. Um, I know for a fact that you built your first car, am I correct? That's correct. Uh, <laughs> I did build when you were talking about um, your next door neighbor coming over and all these different influences that you had growing up and sort of the, the, the things that mattered and the things that made you uh, possibly learn how to learn or, or come to, this, uh, to, to your conclusions of what is important, et cetera. Would you mind sharing that experience uh, with, the, with the listeners? Uh, you're building your car out of uh, little parts yeah. of your, yeah. Yeah, so I I think it is a very fundamental. I fell in love with a car that was essentially in a barn um, when I was a fourteen-year-old. It had a it was a car that I'd never seen before. So as a fourteen-year-old, you pay attention to all the cars that go fast and the rest. And this one looked like it could go fast, but it was of a shape and style I'd never seen. And I um, it was in a. It was in the next door neighbors to my grandparents. And like I said, just in a barn. And, you know, funnily enough, of course, it hadn't run for 10 years. But I, like I said, I fell in love with it. And I asked if I could buy it. And I remember it was, I purchased it for like $200 and the ability to haul it away. So um, my stepfather at the time, Wayne, um, he was happy to um, sort of encourage me in this project. And he helped me haul it away. And then it lived in the driveway of my childhood home for the next two years while, you know, every day after school, I would do something to try to, you know, make it run. Um, and he was very helpful and encouraging. He would, you know, the other great thing about working on a car like that is you can make a lot of mistakes, but at the end of the day, there's no, the, the ultimate judgment is, does it run, right? Nobody's, you know, nobody's sort of, you know, hovering over you or being like, oh, that was a bad thing we've done there. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. It was also a lot of fun to finally make your own car work and then drive that, um, you know, around throughout high school. So I think it was a, it was definitely an educational experience. The other thing that you'll remember on Riet is that, you know, I didn't come from, you know, a lot of means, you might say. So I always had a lot of different jobs. And so I tell people, I worked like, I worked every bad job you could ever work, right? If it was a job that you didn't want to do, but it made some money, I probably did it. Um, whether it was waiting tables, delivering things with the car that I'd rebuilt, you know, construction jobs. I had one crazy job when we knew one another in um, college where I was like the repairman for an apartment complex. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I, had, I had tons of, you know, crazy jobs. And I think the best thing about the really bad jobs taught me was what I didn't want to do, right? You don't want to simply do something to earn money, right? Some of those jobs were reasonably lucrative and you could see how you could turn those into careers, which would over time, you know, make you money, that you would be doing something that quite simply was going to leave you unfulfilled. 
Um, so I really thank the fact that I had a tremendous number of terrible jobs as I grew up to teach me that you don't want to have a job. You want to have a passion. You want to have something that you sort of fall in love with. And then when you're doing it, if you become successful and they pay you for it, that's even better. Um, and I, I think I've said this to lots of people and I might've said it even already in this interview. Um, I got lucky in that I fell in love with science, right? I found something I love and I really truly fell in love with it. Once I understood that I could do experimental biology, I could actually ask questions on my own. And after that, that passion carried me through the next 15 years without me even really questioning why I was doing anything. You know, before you know it, you're on a faculty and, life has caught up with you and you start to ask, you know, the next question is like, what would I want to do writ large? Um, but just that simple passion was enough to, you know, not make it feel like work, which is also good because I worked harder at that job than I've ever worked at anything I've done in my life. You know, you would put in 80, 100 hour weeks and not think about it because you just enjoyed doing it. Mm. So would you go a little bit into, lead us through the re research that you have conducted over the years? Absolutely. Um, you know, so the, like I said, the thing that caught my interest, so I started as, interestingly enough, I started as a chemist, and I started as a chemist because I thought biology was a soft science. When you get taught about it in textbooks, it's always about like the diversity of life, the ecology and the ecosystem, and you don't think about um, what are the questions in biology that you might be able to approach with the same rigor that you use in chemistry where you can you know set up a particular equation and sort of understand what the outcomes will be so it wasn't until late in my undergraduate career that i started getting involved in a type of biological research which was electrophysiology which we were using tools, very sensitive tools to measure electrical currents that actually go through channels that live on the ends of your nerves. So these are the channels that actually conduct the, you know, the electrical signals through nerves that eventually mean those coordinated signals allow for movement, thought, you name it. Um, and I thought to myself, this is amazing. Like I can measure in a very specific way the activity of these channels and that directly links to the way in which these neurons are working and the way these neurons work directly links to the whole control of the way our brain works. And so I got caught up with the idea that maybe I could go into something like neuroscience and start to understand this big question of consciousness and cognition, um, which is what I went into my graduate studies to do. And I went into the neuroscience department and I fell in love with this area of research, which was again, another set of um, receptors on the outsides of nerves that actually guide them to where they're going to go to make a connection. Um, and after doing literally five years of research, it dawned on me that I didn't know anything more about consciousness or cognition. <laughs> All I understood was how these receptors that live on the surfaces of these cells communicate inside those cells to direct their growth um, from one place to another. Um, and so I took a step back and I asked myself, well, heck, how many people in neuroscience are actually studying cognition or consciousness, et cetera? It turns out like almost no one, 99.9% .9 of this gigantic field of biological research is actually just studying how cells that are associated with the nervous system work, um, but they don't try to think about that larger sort of meta question of how that then coordinates into something as interesting as perception or 
consciousness or cognition? Some people do, but it's a hard question and people are still struggling to make, you know, to get track of the answers. But at that point I decided, huh, maybe I don't necessarily want to study neuroscience. I, maybe I want to understand something that's maybe um, simpler. Um, and so at the time, I thought maybe the simplest thing I could understand were some of those first decisions that are made during development. So one of the magical things in biology is sperm meets egg. So two cells meet and you get a, a fully developed animal, which is just unbelievable. So when you think about humans, that those came from two cells meeting. And most of us know that the cell that does all the work is actually the egg. <laughs> so 99% of the information is actually contained in the egg. And then it becomes a fully elaborated human over time. And so I thought, why not try to study some of those earliest decisions just after the egg and sperm meet when, you know, that egg divides into two cells and then four, and when do those cells start to become different? And then how do those cells make decisions about who's going to make the outside of the animal versus the inside versus specific organs, et cetera. And that sounded like a really exciting area to sort of like go ahead and um, look into. And I think I mentioned at the time, human embryonic stem cells had just been identified. And so these were cells that were taken from the very earliest stage of human embryos, just before the embryo starts making decisions about what's going to be where, like what's going to be skin, what's going to be your intestines, et cetera. And so I thought maybe these would allow me in a simplified system to ask some of those questions. Um, and that's what got me started. And I have to credit my mentor, Doug Melton, for sort of helping shift my thinking over the course of my postdoctoral career, because I went out with the just natural curiosity of someone who wanted to know more about biology. And he started to under, you know, sort of influence me to think beyond biology and how you might use what you know to help other people. And his motivation, you might say, was selfish, but it was selfish in the best way. Both of his children and were born with type 1 diabetes. And so he had dedicated his life and his research to trying to understand type 1 diabetes and potentially cure it. And when he told me that, I thought, wow, there's no better thing as, in terms of an outcome of what you might do or learn than to help people who are suffering from some type of devastating disease. So that was the refocusing of my efforts after my postdoctoral you know, sort of research was, how can I use these cells, which have the ability to become any cell in the human body to better understand diseases that afflict people. Um, and I chose a disease when I had the opportunity to set up my own lab, which I thought was really getting insufficient attention, at least on a, you know, you might say molecular level, which was obesity. And most people are like, yeah, but obesity, isn't that just a disease where you, you know, are eating too much and you push away from the table? You have to understand 15 years ago when I started, that's still what we thought. We thought it was a disease of willpower where people were supposed to just push away from the table and those who had weak willpower were unable to do that, unable to do that, and thus they got obese and um, et cetera. And I wanted to understand like what makes us fat, why diets don't work, like why nobody seems to be able to battle getting fat. And then worse off, when you are fat, why that always leads to certain sets of diseases. Like why do you, as a person who's fat, often get diabetes? And why do fat diabetics almost always die of heart attacks? And this was a big, you know, it's a big problem throughout America. It's a big problem worldwide, but it was in particular a big problem where I came from, Kansas. When I would go home, 
have constantly seen more and more fat people, um, you know, versus when you travel abroad to Europe or if you were in a big city or um, in, in New England like Boston where there's still slim people. I still think that if you ask yourself over the last 40 years, what's the biggest change in America and maybe everywhere is just how fat people have become. <laughs> and it was one of those questions that I thought if I could do something about this in my research career, that would be, you'd be able to wake up in the morning and feel like, okay, I accomplished something. Okay, well, will you go on a little bit more? It's fascinating. Oh, absolutely. So in doing that, um, we had a lot of starts and stops is the best way to say it. You know, again, back to failing. Research is 99% failure and 1% success. And so what I came into it with was, uh, I came into this field with a fresh set of assumptions and, uh, you know, you might say, um, I didn't know anything. And by not knowing anything, I was able to ask a bunch of questions with fresh ideas. Um, and ultimately, what I learned was, of course, it's a very difficult problem. But one of the reasons it's so difficult is it's not as simple as fat. I actually got really obsessed for a little while around fat cells and adipose tissue and like what makes this tissue and the rest function. And you start to realize that fat cells are just an important part of a energy circuit within humans. Um, and that fat cells are communicating with muscle cells, which are communicating with liver cells and brain cells. There's an entire network of cells and organs that are communicating to establish what we would call an energy cycle in people. And I don't think that that was fully appreciated when I first started. And we started to try to understand it more and more. And what I eventually um, started to gravitate towards was something that was giving us an ability to get an, you know, you might say it was the first traction or the first sort of like handhold we got into the problem, which came from genetics. And genetics is just a simple question of, we, you know, we were just starting to sequence the human genome. And as we sequenced the human genome, what we were finding was that we were a lot less similar in certain ways than we thought we were. And in particular, the genome, which is this gigantic assembly of um, you know, ribonucleotides or bases as we like to call them, only makes you know, a very small percentage of that makes the building blocks for life. In other words, the proteins that we put together that sort of make the vast majority of the cells, which make the vast majority of organs in the rest. So in humans, there's probably you know, 20 to 22,000 quote unquote genes that make proteins. And that is actually only about 20% of the DNA in any cell. So there's 80% of it, 90% of it that we don't even know what it does. And what we were finding was that in that 80 or 90%, there was a lot of differences between people. And that some of those differences started to um, accumulate statistically significantly, not only in the way in which people were different, but also in ways that we could associate with disease. So we would find changes in DNA that would be statistically associated with your likelihood to become fat, your likelihood to get heart disease, your likelihood to get mental illness. And so I got really fascinated with trying to understand those genetic effects um, through the same lens of the tools that I already knew how to um, sort of manipulate. And that was probably the next 10 years of my research, mostly focused on obesity, but in general, sort of trying to explore how genes shape the sort of outcomes for humans. Um, and it was, 
it was a lot of fun just because being in Boston, which is one of the centers of sort of global bio, biology, biotech research, you really got to be close to a lot of interesting discoveries, not only the human genome, but the sequencing projects that happened there um, and new tools for trying to explore what were differences. And what I got really excited about was there was a major advance in stem cells that was actually made in Japan which allowed you to make a pluripotent stem cell that looked just like a human embryonic stem cell um, from a patient's skin or any other cell in their body. This was called making an induced pluripotent stem cell. And it was just earth shattering. It was earth shattering to think that you could do this, um, that you could take somebody's skin cell and basically turn back the clock and make it think that it was identical to a cell that came out of an early embryo. But it turns out that you can. Um, and that sort of watershed moment, not only was I involved in some of the early research around that, but it meant that now I could collect, much like you do in genetics research, people that have a certain sort of genetic predilection or genetic predisposition towards a disease and make these stem cells from them. And then so instead of having the people go through what would be a clinical trial, I could take their cells, turn them into something that might be, you know, affected in the disease, say it might be heart muscle cells if they were going to have a heart attack or, you know, their, their vessels if it was going to be some fatty accumulation or it might be even their liver or fat if it were something to do with diabetes. And I could test what's actually different about these cells from these people with this genetic deficit that would sort of help me understand what was going on. Um, and that was incredibly rewarding. Um, and that really does sum up probably 10 or 15 years of research. There was, what's funny about research though, there's a very famous researcher who won the Nobel Prize, I guess only about less than a decade ago. His name is Sidney Brennan. And he's British um, originally, although he moved to the United States and lives in, lived in Palo Alto and then also set up a lot of the research infrastructure in Singapore. Sidney Brenner has a lot of famous things, but one of his famous things is you always want to study the, the problem in the simplest possible system. So he had a lot of different problems he wanted to study, but the system he chose was actually this little groundworm called Cannabidus elegans, or C. elegans, uh, which is this little groundworm that's round that you can find if you go dig up soil today. And he basically moved it into the laboratory and set it up as a laboratory animal that now hundreds and hundreds of labs use to try to understand a variety of questions about how you give rise to the outside of an animal, the inside of an animal, um, how animal cells become wired to allow it to sense its environment, you name it. But that was Sidney Brenner. The quote that he had that caught my attention was he, he basically said, most of biology is all about or most of science is all about new techniques in other words developing new technologies that allow you to now ask new questions that then eventually maybe give rise to new ideas or new solutions right so that's exactly the opposite of what most students would think like most students think that you have this big idea and then that idea drives you towards trying to do something and then eventually you do something else and that's a a really intellectually satisfying way to think about a problem, but it turns out it's usually a new tool that gives you the app, the ability to sort of crack open or take a new approach to an old problem and suddenly shed new light on it. Um, and that 
you know, is of course the brilliance of Sidney Brenner. And in truth, the 10 years that I worked on trying to do this bigger problem of taking people's genetics and trying to understand how those linked to the diseases that they had was actually a 10 years of tool building. We figured out how to take these pluripotent stem cells and turn them into a bunch of different cell types that are affected in um, cardiovascular, metabolic, and other diseases. Um, so those differentiation protocols, as they're called, the ability to turn them into fat cells, endothelial cells, heart muscle cells, even the neurons in your brain that sense food and tell you when you're full or when you're um, hungry, we could make those. So we basically spent a lot of time making a variety of cells. We also wanted to be able to change the genetics, right? So if we thought that this gene or genetic change was actually responsible for the outcome, the most elegant experiment you can imagine is to actually make an identical twin cell that doesn't have that change, right? So that it's identical in every way, except for the one change that you think is responsible. So you wanna be able to go into the cell and change the genome if possible. So we started working on tools that would allow you to do that and got swept up in this huge discovery that just this year won the Nobel Prize, which was the CRISPR um, gene editing technology. Um, so again, that was just another tool building technology discovery um, that we were a part of that allowed us to now genetically change cells in a way that would allow us to say whether or not this change is linked to a disease state. So, you know, 10 years of new technologies led to a handful of new discoveries. <laughs> it's the real, um, it is the real bottom line. But sometimes those technological discoveries also, this is the beauty of academic research, is you don't always have a, a specific goal in mind. And so sometimes the wandering path that you take through the woods is what allows for some amazing discoveries. And those amazing discoveries actually lend themselves even better for a question that's not something that you're immediately um, focused on. So an example of that is we wanted to use this CRISPR gene editing tool to make changes in pluripotent stem cells to better understand how genetic changes influence disease outcomes. It was a wonderful tool for doing that. But as we started to understand how well the CRISPR gene editing technology worked, it became really obvious to myself and a couple of my colleagues that it might actually be even better utilized to develop new gene therapies for diseases that are a, a result from single gene changes. So these are these so-called monogenic or inborn diseases that hundreds if not thousands of people suffer from on the planet. And if you could go into the genome and correct those, especially in certain cell types, you could completely correct the disease. And the disease that we got fascinated with because it still devastates millions of people on the world is sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. This is pandemic in Africa. So most of Sub-Saharan Africa, about 30% of the people there suffer from this disease. And interestingly, 90% of those people have a single genetic change in their globin gene. The globin gene actually makes beta globin which is the protein that actually carries oxygen to all the cells in your body. And you usually find the globin gene in red blood cells. Red blood cells, as you've probably seen if you've bled, are the things that make the blood look red because they've got the globin gene, which binds an iron molecule, a heme molecule, um, which gives it that sort of red color in oxygen. So they carry oxygen to all the cells in your body. What happens if you have this one mutation is that 
that protein, instead of being flexible and easy, becomes rigid and it actually self-associates with all of its other copies. And you have to understand the red blood cells are professional oxygen carriers, so they make more globin than anything else. So they're basically just sacks of globin. And that globin starts to stick to one another and it makes it rigid and it gives the cells a, a sort of a defining characteristic. They, they turn into what's called sickle. You can see them under the microscope. They look like little half moons. But these little half moons aren't flexible and bendy like usual red blood cells. And so what happens to those is as they're transiting through the body, they get stuck in little vessels. And when they get stuck there, they block that vessel, which means that everything downstream of that isn't getting red blood cells and isn't getting oxygen. So people who have sickle cell disease make a lot of these sickled cells. They stick in little blood vessels and they essentially kill off parts of organs. So these people get remarkable amounts of lung damage, kidney damage, liver damage, etc. And it happens from the moment that they're really little children. And the way it presents, the body's not a very sophisticated machine, you might think of it, is when you starve internal organs from oxygen, the way in which your body sort of tries to tell you something's wrong is through pain, incredible pain. And so these kids will come into the hospital in what they call pain crises because they have incredible internal pain because of the sort of death of some of the portions of these organs because you're starving them of oxygen. Um, and the treatment, I kid you not, for the last 50 or 60 years is to essentially give these kids the strongest pain relief that we can. We often just give them morphine until the pain crisis passes. The other treatment that we could do is you can give them fresh blood. You can give them somebody else's blood that doesn't have stickled red blood cells to basically try to wash out the blood that they're making themselves. So those are the two major ways in which you treat the disease. Treat pain and give them new blood, right? It's probably no surprise that that doesn't work long-term and the vast majority of people with sickle cell disease die in their late 40s, often even younger. Well, what we realized was that you could make a change, just that one little change in the DNA, and you don't have to do it for all the other cells in the body because globin is only in red blood cells. So you just need to do it in blood cells. If you could just make a change in blood cells in these individuals, and if you could do it in the right blood cell, maybe for the rest of their life, they could have new blood that doesn't have the wrong genetics. And we were helped by the fact that 40 years of other research had shown us that there was a stem cell in blood, known as a hematopoietic stem cell, that gives rise to all of the other blood cell types. So it was clear we could make one genetic change in this special blood stem cell, transplant that into patients who had sickle cell disease, and now they would basically make, you know, perfect cells. Um, and, you know, we were really excited about this idea. We went and did what people do in America. We went and talked to people with, with money <laughs> to back these ideas. And I always tell people, people will ask me like, well, how, why would they give you money? You're aided by like two or three things when you do this and you go ask them. One, I was a professor at Harvard, right? So when a professor at Harvard tries to explain to you like this is what the science is and why it's getting you there, people usually think, oh, I should pay attention to that. There's no real reason they should pay attention to that except that it was actually right because it's written in a lot of textbooks. And B, they probably heard of Harvard. It's probably the second most famous brand name. So they would listen to what we were saying. The other thing that helped was a lot of other people were saying the same thing, <laughs> you know? so. There was enough information about this disease. There was enough information about the technology that it started to become um, so what I like to refer to as a no-brainer, relatively obvious to do. And so we were lucky in that we 
got people to risk their money on what sounded like a potentially crazy idea. And we built a company called CRISPR Therapeutics. And I guess that was six, uh, yeah, six or seven years ago when that first launched. And that company now makes a drug that is able to cure people with sickle cell disease. So they've treated over 15 people with the drug we developed and all 15 people are fully free and clear of all the pain crises or all the associated deficits that come about as a result of sickle cell disease because they went in, changed the genome with this gene editing tool, CRISPR, and then did transplants of this blood stem cell. So it's, um, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable to be a part of something like that from the idea like this might work to the let's get a little bit of money together. Let's hire a bunch of talented scientists who work like you know, crazy on the problem to the point where you have to bring in a bunch of other really talented people who are clinicians and understand how you would recruit people for a trial and how you would test your new medicine in those patients to the point where now they have a medicine that looks like it works. And the hardest part, this again is crazy. The hardest part now is if you have a medicine that works, how do you actually make it something that a lot of people will be able to use? How do you, we, the term we use is commercialize it. How can you make sure that's given access to patients who need it. And there's a reimbursement model that's gonna work for the company and for the patients and everything else. And that's a whole nother hard problem. I'm glad that that's not the problem I have to work on. I only have to work on the sort of easier biological problem up front. But that's what got me from where I started in my career in biology, you know, sort of asking questions, asking about human health to a different place, which is, you know, what are the tools and what are the things I know right now that I might be able to use in a very applied way to make a difference in patients' lives today? And that's why I stepped away from academia and now direct a biotech company, because I think there's a lot of opportunity to make these same types of changes in um, other areas, in particular cell therapy. In particular, cell therapy? Oh, cell therapy. So if you think about what we did with CRISPR, most people in the story that I tell, they think, oh, well, what you changed was a gene. It's absolutely true we changed the gene, but what we put back into the patients is actually a cell that has a repaired genome. So it's actually a cell that's doing all the work. Um, and that cell goes in and it repopulates the bone marrow, and then it makes new red blood cells that have the corrected gene. So it's actually the cell that's doing 99% of the job here. And what we did was just change one little base. In fact, a single base often is what was changed in the cell. Um, and so when you start thinking about how that cell could do all of that, it starts to make you think, what if I could do that with other cells? And what if I could harness the opportunity of cells to get in there and do their natural jobs, but applied in different ways? Um, and I'll give you a good example. So right now, everybody is typically, you know, working from home or very concerned with coronavirus or COVID. And the reason we're really concerned about it is it's a pretty deadly form of an infectious disease that um, almost none of us have immunity to because it, it, we've never been exposed to it. What if I could give you a lifetime immunity to that? Well, that's possible because it's been done again and again and again for lots of infectious diseases. That's how we cured polio. That's how we um, cured most of the other infectious diseases that have come along is that we've immunized you to these diseases. And if you ask how that works, inside your body, you basically have a B cell, which is one of your immune cells that puts out antibodies that are against these infectious agents. 
And if you see that infectious agent more than once, you eventually form what's known as a long-lived B cell or plasma cell, which resides in your marrow and for the rest of your life makes an antibody that makes you immune to that infection. So some people who got polio vaccinations when they were a kid are immune to polio for their entire lives. People who caught measles or had a measles vaccination when they were a kid are immune to it for their entire lives. That's all because of the cell. Now imagine if I could give you that cell making a coronavirus antibody. We know the antibodies that neutralize coronavirus. What if you engineered it so that it now made that coronavirus antibody and now you have a lifetime immunity to coronavirus? Why this is so exciting for me is that people are like, well, but Chad, coronavirus mutates. You're just going to get next year's coronavirus. So you're going to get next year's flu or you're going to get that. That's absolutely true. And it turns out your immune system is bad at fighting the root problem, it fights sort of the problems around the edges. So it will make an antibody that neutralizes this year's coronavirus, but it doesn't always make sure that it's going to actually neutralize next year's coronavirus. Some people, very lucky people, the one in a million, make what we call a broad, broadly neutralizing antibody, an antibody that actually hits the virus in such a way that it neutralizes every possible form of it, even if it tries to mutate around. Now, what if I told you I could give you that antibody so that you're now for what, your lifetime immune to coronavirus? That's the same thing that you could potentially do for HIV, which, you know, the problem with HIV is only one in a million people actually make a neutralizing antibody. So the vast majority of people who get exposed to it aren't able to neutralize that infection. But what if I could give you one of the antibodies that we know would work? Um, these are the things that get me excited. And that's based on cell biology, not necessarily you know, trying to give people antibodies and trying to, you know, you need to be able to give them a cell that's going to live in their marrow and produce this antibody for the lifetime. And that will protect them. So, so go a little bit more into your biotechnology company. Yeah. So that's one of the things it does. <laughs> so if I, um, this is a really long story, but it starts 10 years ago. So I worked in a laboratory that was trying to cure type one diabetes. And I thought that was a really noble goal. And the professor that I worked for, Doug Melton, when I asked him, what are you trying to do with type 1 diabetes? He was like, well, the disease ultimately attacks and kills insulin-producing beta cells. So the cells in your body that sense your blood sugar levels and then excrete insulin so that you can actually modify that. And um, he was like, I want to make new insulin-producing beta cells from stem cells. We know stem cells can make any cell in the body. The cell I want to make are insulin-producing cells. Because if I could give those cells back to my... Um, you know, son and daughter, they would now have a functional sort of, you know, blood glucose control system. But I thought, oh, that sounds great. I was actually so naive that it took me probably two or three months to do all the reading and the research to realize that type 1 diabetes is a disease that's actually called an autoimmune disease. Your own immune system, for reasons we still don't understand, sees your insulin-producing cells as foreign, and it attacks them and destroys them. Right, so it says we can't have these, we're gonna get rid of them. Much like what happens in multiple sclerosis or MS as people call it, where you start thinking some of your own nerves are not one of the things that you want and your immune system attacks them. Many autoimmune diseases, we can go through them, do this, where your immune system seems to potentially malfunction and attack cells that are keeping you healthy. Um, and so I go back to my inventor, Doug, and I say, Doug, look, if we make beta cells or insulin producing cells, as they're also called, um, 
from stem cells and we put them back into your son or daughter, their immune system is just going to kill them because this is an autoimmune disease and their autoimmune, you know, their, their immune system already knows we should kill these types of cells. He said, yes, that's exactly right. And I was like, so why are we just focused on the beta cells? He was like, I'm, I'm a developmental biologist, not an immunologist. I don't know enough about the immune system to try to approach that, Chad, and both problems are equally big. I'm going to focus on this problem and I'm going to hope that the field that's focusing on the other problem, you know, gets to the, you know, the, a solution at the same time I get to my solution and we can put them together. I think to myself, oh, that's really reasonable. And it's actually quite appropriately humble in that you can't know all things or do all things in your lifetime or in science. So he works for the next 10 years on making and some producing cells. Um, he gets to the point where he can make them and they look terrific. They look just like the ones you'd want to transplant into somebody. Sadly, the immunology community has not solved the problem <laughs> of how you're going to recorrect the immune system. And we start trying to look at ways in which you can put those cells into patients. And the most um, immediate way you could do that is to, and I call this the tea bag. You can put the cells inside a tea bag, you know, just like you would with tea and put that tea bag into a patient. And then the tea bag itself protects the cells from the immune system so that they can't get in there and try to attack the cells. The one problem with that is that there's all kinds of problems with tea bags. Like if you keep them in there too long and they steep and run out of like their signal, the same thing can happen here. What if the cells don't survive well inside the tea bag? What if the immune system, rather than attacking the cells, attacks the bag and covers it so it can no longer interact with the rest of the body? Lots of problems with the tea bag. Um, but that's still the solution that they're. Um, currently pursuing. It's more like a device, but you can think of it as a feedback. We wondered, why couldn't you just put the cells into that patient, right? Cells are transplanted into people every day. The most commonly transplanted cells are blood. And we all know that if you are the magical type O negative, or I think in German, they call it type O not, you know, you're not uh, blood. So that means that you don't have an RH factor positive and you're type not, meaning you don't have one of the blood factor type antigens, that cell can be accepted by everybody else. Um, and it's a peculiar thing in the immune system and we could get into it, but the reason why it can be is it's not recognized by the rest of the immune system. And so I started wondering, why couldn't we build cells that wouldn't be recognized by the immune system? Um, and I started asking a lot of immunologists and I got told for about a year and a half straight that that was crazy it wouldn't work here's why it wouldn't work here's the various ways the immune system attacks this type of cell versus this type of cell so it was a very depressing prospect until um, i was having lunch with my next door neighbor in my uh, department jack strominger who's currently 94 years old and at the time was about 84 years old he tells me chad you're just looking in the wrong place this is an easily solved problem he said this miracle happens every single day Every single pregnancy should be rejected. Every single fetus that's in a pregnant mother is half the dad. And if you were to take the dad's kidney and try to put it in the mom, she would reject that kidney, no problem. But somehow this developing fetus never gets rejected. And he said, if you want to understand how to protect cells from rejection, you want to understand how that happens in the miracle of pregnancy. So I started studying what happens in the developing fetus to protect those cells from the immune system. Um, and essentially, a bunch of genetic unique changes in the cells that protect them. That essentially, the way I try to say it that isn't too technical is 
they essentially tell the immune system everything's okay. So we recreated those changes in pluripotent stem cells. So we would first make some changes that hide them from this, the immune system and some changes that essentially tell the immune system everything's okay. And we've been able to show that you can take these stem cells, put them into an animal, and the animal's immune system can't identify. So now we have the opportunity of making any cell we want from this starting cell point to put into anybody. And you might say, well, why would you do all of that? The answer is that cell therapy is just that it's a therapy. It's not a medicine right now because it's too expensive. It's too hard to do. If you want to go get one of the therapies we invented at CRISPR, it's incredibly difficult to do. You have to show up to the doctor, qualify for it. They then take your cells. And in this case, they're going to take your bone marrow cells. So it's an incredibly difficult and painful operation to get those out. They then expand enough of them to make sure we can then do this gene editing process to change the gene. And we're going to transplant those cells back into you, right? Each one of these life-saving therapeutics costs approximately half a million to a million US dollars. Um, it's an enormously expensive thing, and it can only happen to each individual patient that has the right cells, et cetera. What if I told you, instead of having to do it like that, I could just make those cells, an unlimited number of the cells, and they're waiting for you in the doctor's freezer. So when you go to the doctor and say, hey, I've got sickle cell anemia, what I'd really like is that sort of genetic mutation in those blood stem cells, and you could just give it to me, voila. Um, the best example of that today is the most cutting-edge cancer therapy is called CAR-T therapy, where we actually take your immune cells and teach them to attack the cancer. And we do that by inserting into those immune cells a receptor that basically directs them to the cancer. And then they now know, hey, I should kill these cells. This has been game-changing in uh, disease treatment. It's taken cancers that were otherwise untreatable and devastating killing patients and completely sent them back into remission to the point that they are free of cancer. The problem, again, is that we have to take those cells from the individual, teach them to kill the cancer, and put them back into the individual. Again, it costs like half a million dollars, and you can only like 500,000 to you know, a million dollars, and you can only do that in really sophisticated research institutes. It's not like you can go to your doctor in Kansas, where I'm from, and say, hey, I need that CAR-T therapy, because like, it can't help you. Now, what if we took these cells that can become any cell, and now made them make a T cell, and not only any T cell, but an unlimited number of T cells. So the beauty of stem cells is they can make anything, and you can make a ton of them, as many as you want. So now we would have T cells that have the CAR, the thing that actually targets the cancer, sitting in freezers throughout the world. So if somebody needed that cancer therapy, they go to the doctor, and just like you get a prescription today for an antibiotic uh, to treat an illness, you might get a prescription for uh, cell therapy. And now in Instead of being self therapy, I like to think of it as a cellular medicine, right? It's a, something that now is broadly available to everyone. You're, back to my old example of HIV, you're never going to cure HIV, which is essentially a pandemic of Southern Africa, if you can't make that something that's widely available to people everywhere. So you need to make a nearly limitless supply of cells relatively cheaply that you can put into almost anyone. Um, and so that's been our goal, and that's the sort of basis of the technology that we have at the new company that we formed called Clade Therapeutics, um, is the ability to make these immune cloaked stem cells that then give rise to 
cells that you might use um, to treat a variety of things. And the two things we're thinking of treating right away are cancer, because that's a very devastating illness. And the other one that it turns out we're uniquely suited to try and do is again, infectious diseases. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about how, what, what linguistic difficulties you've encountered, uh, whether, whether you were trying to make use of research done abroad um, or, or whether you were trying to communicate with colleagues or trying to communicate your research abroad? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So we're lucky in science. So whether it's physics, chemistry, biology, you name it, most of the sciences, 90% of them are decided now it's almost 50 years ago that the universal language of science is going to be English. So that was good for me as Andrea, you know, I'm challenged in all languages and I'm lucky that English is the only one I've got. So most of the scientific community essentially communicates in this one language, even though it's relatively difficult, I would say, for our colleagues abroad that have to sort of learn to communicate their ideas and thoughts in what is my native tongue. Um, but it has, I think, actually led to uh, science being an incredibly global thing. So we are all across the planet working on the same problems because we communicate effectively about those problems. You're able to publish all in the same readable formats because everybody reading um, and studying a particular biological problem is using one language. Um, so it really does in a way that I wouldn't have thought harmonizing language would do it. It's made it international. It's 100% international. With that said, there's still people in different countries doing the cutting edge science and their first language is definitely not going to be English. And where we really see this come into play is Japan. So Japan has led the world in the pluripotent stem cell research area. So they were the first to make induced pluripotent stem cells. They were often the first to pioneer the protocols for turning stem cells into various cell types. And Japanese language and culture is one of the most different to English that you can get. I'll give you a good example. In Japan, it's very rude to say no. You almost never say no. So there's about 15 forms of yes, right? There's a really definitive yes, like I'm really gonna do that, absolutely yes. And there's a yes that it, in essence means no, but you're saying yes because you don't want to shame the other person by saying no so directly. They very rarely, if ever, say no. You'll even see this in English from um, English speaking Japanese, they'll often say maybe no, right? When they wanna say no, they have to add some sort of an adjective or something additional to it to say, to soften the notes. They don't, they'll often say things like yes, no, or maybe no, or, you know, they don't want to say no. And it, it can be very difficult communicating across that same barrier just because culturally and language wise, it's so different that when you're trying to get to what we in science will talk about are not truths, but facts, like what are the limits of what we know or understand, you sometimes need hard yeses and hard noes and having like 15 different forms of yes and some of them mean no can really muddy the water, so to speak. So that's one of the ways that I really um, have encountered it. The other way we've encountered it is the Nobel Prize winners. So two women won the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, um, Jennifer Doudna here in the United States and Emmanuel Charpentier, who's now in Germany, leading up one of the Max Planck Institutes, who's actually French. We worked with Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is one of the most talented scientists I've ever worked with. She's lovely, but she is very French. <laughs> and so in terms of communicating with her, you need to, you know, 
understand both the cultural and the rest of that to get, you know, she communicates very clearly in English, but if she's going to get frustrated, she's going to turn to French or she's going to approach it as a French person would. Um, and, you know, I think you can never take, I try to tell students this, science sounds like this pure thing, but science is something conducted by people and you never take the people out of the um, work that's being done or out of the process or out of the endeavor. It's always a bunch of people coming together. And so they bring their individual, you know, whatever it is, backgrounds, but they also bring their national identities, their cultural and their language. The language can influence the way they think about things, the way they ask questions about things. And it, uh, it really colors a lot of different aspects of um, research. But even at the end of the day, in a system like ours, where it should be even simpler to communicate because we're all supposedly using the same language, we're not because that language is still culturally based and based in the way people do it. So it's uh, it definitely it serves it it served me to try to become a student of different cultures. Right, first understand the people and understand their culture and understand who they are, so that you can get a better understanding of what they're trying to communicate to you. Um, you know, because probably that Japanese colleague is trying to tell you no, but not be rude. <laughs> well, that's kind of the, the point of the podcast, right? I mean, that the, the language and culture affects all areas of life and all, all fields of work. It's not, it's not just uh, reserved to uh, humanities. So It's definitely not reserved to humanities. I mean, in English, in science is the area you would say, oh, it's probably the least intrusive, but it's completely intrusive. And you can see it color the way different scientists think about problems like rather than making very definitive um statements like americans you know for better or worse are some of the most definitive they'll make very definitive very declarative statements in the science and the approaches that they take whereas you'll see other cultures taking a more cautious or more open approach to you know this could be one solution or there are other ways to do it but often it's cultural versus um not not the language right even though when you read the paper you'll see oh they were not as um, firm with their conclusion. Well, that's because culturally it doesn't pay to be firm with conclusions. Whereas in America, where it's still very popular to be brash, you see a lot of people making very declarative, strong conclusions, which are often wrong, <laughs> but they still do it in the most convincing possible way. Chad, it's been really fascinating. Um, any last words that you'd like to add? Um, let me see. I would just say to um, students in any, uh, of any age, one, keep learning. That seems to be one of the underlying themes for the things I do. I try to do things that let me keep learning. And two, try to follow your passions. Like if you're lucky enough to have a passion that you can turn into a job, you'll never feel like you did a day's work. Those are good last words. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Anya. And thank you all for listening. Make sure to tune in next time. This is Dr. J signing out.